Today, I'd like for to talk with you about a spiritual awakening, a spiritual awakening. And it is in mind or in line with uh, our discussion after service today uh, with regards to our church. And so I wanted to talk to you about a spiritual awakening because oftentimes people talk about a revival and it's so difficult to define a revival because people define it by numbers possibly. People define it by, um, you know, new things that are happening to the church. But really what, what I see in scriptures is not a revival per se as we understand it today. It is more of what it is, what we would call an awakening, an awakening. So I would like for us to look at a biblical account of a true awakening because that is what we are desperate for in our lives individually, in our church corporately, in our community here in Schaumburg, in northwestern suburbs, and, of course, in our nation. We are believing God for an awakening. There's no other possible way of turning the tide other than having an awakening. But an awakening that is not designed by man, awakening that is designed by God. An awakening that is not orchestrated by men sitting around and discussing marketing strategies and, you know, the momentum creating events, but an awakening that is of the very Spirit of God. How does this happen? That's what we're talking about today. An awakening that will impact the people of God in a spiritual way and not just in an emotional way or even in a relational way. Because oftentimes, there's a lot of community, but there's no awakening. Oftentimes, there's a lot of psychology, but there's no awakening. Oftentimes, there's a lot of emotion, but there's no awakening. We want to know what it means to have an awakening by God. Now, there was such an awakening in the Bible that we're going to study this morning, and it, was, it took place under the preaching of the priest Ezra. So I'd like to read to you this morning from Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. So if you don't mind, to stand with me for a moment as we read the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. And you will see in this portion they do exactly the same. They stand as they hear the Word of God read. The Bible says in verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. Then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden pulpit, which they had made for this purpose. And beside him, now I'm not going to read all these names, beside him, six men on his right, and another seven men on his left. He was surrounded by these men of Israel. We're going to go to verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed low 
and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, 13 Levites, don't need to mention their names, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So the Levites made things plain and clear to the people. Verse 9, then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the Lord. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not be grieved, for the joy of your, the Lord is your strength. There's that verse. Verse 11, So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Amen. You may be seated. The most glaring principle that is here that we can see in this mighty movement of God and this moment is so evident in all of the mighty moves of God, all of the awakenings from Ezra throughout all the American, to the American Great Awakenings in 1730 and 1740 with George Whitfield. You will see this. You will see that the Word of God is proclaimed. And you will see that people's hearts are cut to the core. These are the two things you will always see in every single great awakening. The Word of God is proclaimed... The Word of God is explained by the Levites. And then people are cut to the heart. They are cut to the core. So throughout redemptive history, every great awakening has always been accompanied by deep conviction over what? Sin. They were proclaiming the law, explaining the standards of God. People were cut to the heart every time. They were convicted every time. Sins that have long been suppressed suddenly surfaced. Consciences that have been silenced and suddenly, suddenly became alive and were pricked. Deep godly sorrow comes to people everywhere. Conviction of sin becomes intolerable. Heaviness of heart settled upon the people. This is a requirement for a great awakening. No great awakening without it. No actual revival in a biblical sense ever happens without that. Go search it out. People hear the law. They hear the word. They fall under conviction. They are heavy in heart. They weeping and they sorrowful for their sin. And in that heart-wrenching experience, sin is confessed. Sin is confessed. Now, I want to drive this point home as often as I can. Many people, when you ask them, why did Jesus come? They can't give you a very clear answer. But the Bible is very clear. Jesus didn't come so I can have my best life, better life right now. Jesus came to deal with my sin problem, right? He came to carry our sins and become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is why Jesus came. 
And this is what happens right here. People hear the law of God. Their hearts convict them. And in that moment, sin is confessed. Repentance runs deep. Jesus is embraced. And forgiveness becomes evident. This is the result of a great awakening. Forgiveness becomes evident. There is no soft or easy awakening. There never has been, never will be a soft and easy awakening. There's never an exciting, exciting awakening where there's electric in the air because uh, a very famous person just stepped into the room. There's no, there's no such awakening. That is an emotional response to our Western culture. There's no soft or easy awakening. Why is this? Because an awakening is when a people are awakened to the holiness of God. Not to their own potential, to the holiness of God. Not to all that could be possible for them in this world. No, to the holiness and the righteousness of God. That is the definition of a biblical awakening. Now, I've been through many revivals where we've gotten very excited about a lot of stuff. But I can tell you right now, a biblical awakening has got nothing to do with that. It's not psychological. It, it is not the hope that you get because of what could happen to you and in you and what you could accomplish in this life. An awakening is when you go, I'm awakened to who God really is. That's an awakening. That awakening only comes... When a man like Ezra gets up and he starts proclaiming the law of God, the Levites gather and they start explaining what was proclaimed and the people fall to their faces and they go, Oh God, oh God, I just saw you and I need a Savior. Oh God, I just saw you and I need a Messiah that can save me because from what I'm looking at in comparison to you I'm left wanting this is a great awakening it is when people recognize the holiness of God which in turn causes them to see how far short they have fallen from the glory of God and when they realize how far they have fallen short of the glory of God that is when they realize just how great of a need they have for a savior it all begins with the awakening to the holiness of God. It all begins with, a, with an awakening to the glorious perfection of God's character. Theonomy is a very big subject. We have to start talking about the attributes of God. And I, I attempted it, I think, two years ago. But we have to start talking about the attributes of God, who He is. He's immutable. He cannot change. That's why God in the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. He is the same. He didn't change. He didn't suddenly become merciful. Think about it. If God in the Old Testament had less mercy than the God in the New Testament, guess what? He changed, didn't He? But that's not true. God is immutable. He does not mutate. He does not become better than He used to be. He's always the same. The God that slaughtered nations is the God that shows you mercy Grace 
and saves you. He's good to you. Is he not? This is why he's a good God. Because even though he's a just judge, he's also a merciful father. And to some, he shows mercy. To the others, he gives justice. But he himself is never unjust. He's not unfair. He gives people what they deserve, justice. But to others, he reaches out and he gives them mercy because he is good. He's a good judge because he's just. He's a good father because he's merciful. So it all begins with an awakening to the holiness of God. It all begins with an awakening to the glorious perfection of His character. It all begins with an awakening to the supremacy and the sovereignty of our God. When we see who He really is, when you start hearing big God theology, when you start hearing that, you go, why am I sweating right now? <laughs> I love this, this meme that I saw on Facebook of, um, you know the Russian guy with the blonde hair that fought Rocky? I think it was Rocky III. But there's this picture of him where he stands, it's, it's where he's kind of like in the, middle of the, in the middle of the fight, and he's sweating like big drops. And he's standing like this, and you could see he's like so intense. And the picture says, this is me after five minutes of listening to Paul Washer. <laughs> right? <laughs> when you listen to big God theology, yeah, you start looking like these people or responding like these people responded when Ezra opened up the book and started reading. During a true awakening, people are humbled before God because of how their sin compares to His holiness. And this is what happens when we experience an awakening. It always happens. And this is exactly what happened uh, during this awakening at the water gates on the east side of Jerusalem. And just let me say this quick. To the person who, when you say to him, hey, you know, Jesus can save you, and they go, like, save me from what? Well, obviously, there needs to be an awakening, right? <laughs> That's what's missing in that conversation, an awakening as to who you really are in comparison to who God really is. And the problem is that person compares himself to Hitler, and he thinks he needs no saving. Saved from what? I'm good. Hitler's bad. But when there's an awakening to who God is, and now it's no longer me comparing myself to Hitler and thinking I'm good, but me seeing, my, seeing myself next to God, realizing how short I have fallen to the glory of God. When I have that revelation, awakening has happened. When I awake to who He is. So when we talk about having an awakening, we are asking God to show Himself to us who He is. How great and supreme and sovereign and all-powerful, omnipotent He really is. And when we get that picture, there, has to, there will always be an awakening. That's why it says, whomever the Father draws to me will come. Jesus said it. The people do come to God when God draws them. It's called irresistible grace. They do not resist Him. They run for shelter. They run for help. They run to the cross. They run to Jesus. They fall on their faces and they worship. Who can resist the hand of God? No one. And God, if God had to show Himself here right now, we would all be right on our faces, right? Nobody's going to sit in the back there going like, yeah, not me. <laughs> Nobody's going to do that.
So this is exactly what happened during the awakening at the Watergate on the east side of Jerusalem. Those who heard the word of the Lord were cut to the core. There was a new awareness of their own sin, a new awareness of their great need to be forgiven by God. But you will see that their weeping will ultimately turn to joy. But it will first start with a deep conviction over sin. And as we look at this text, I want to highlight three elements that enabled this awakening. So we're going to look at this awakening and find the three very important things in there because our church, um, you know, it would be very wise for us to take the Word of God and fashion ourselves around it, wouldn't it? Because when we do, the th the, when we do things God's way, we will have God's results. Amen? And so as we look at this text, the first element that we find, which is in Nehemiah chapter 8, starting with verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered as one man. We see the spiritual hunger of the people. This is the first element. The spiritual hunger of the people. People were desperate to know God. There was a hunger. There was a man that came to the United States the first time he came, and he has a very, very large church. God has used him in a very, very big way. When he came to a prayer meeting in the United States, and he comes from the East, when he landed, picked him up, and they drove him to, the, to the, uh, where the prayer meeting was, and he said, when I landed here, the one thing I realized driving here, that America has this one problem, one problem, distraction, uh, we're just so distracted. We just have so many things. People are so busy. You are never too busy for the things of God, right? You are just more important. You are just interested in other things, or other things are just more important to you. Nobody's too busy for the things of God. They just have other uh, priorities instead. And God knows that. I mean, you know, and you know that too. And we have to realize, we have to remind ourselves that. The people here were very hungry for spiritual things. So verse 1 says, And all the people gathered as one man. They gathered as one man. Commentators believe that there were between, or as few as 30,000 people, and as many as 50,000 people gathering. And they gathered there as one man, which means they gathered at the water gate on the east side of Jerusalem in one place with one mind for one purpose, and that is to hear from God. The time was the seventh day of the seventh month, which was equivalent of the beginning of the new year on the Jewish calendar. In other words, this was kind of like the New Year's resolution. We want to hear a word from God. Ezra, tell us what God is saying. Read to us the law of God. And I personally am praying for and am waiting for the day when people, people everywhere will start begging their pastor, Pastor, can you... Can we have less psychology and more doctrine, please? <laughs> Pastor, can we have fewer stories and greater exegesis of Scripture, please? Tell me what the Scripture is actually saying. I don't want to hear another story about you and your kids when you went to the mall and you helped a lady, you know. Pastor, can we have fewer stories? Pastor, can we have more Bible readings, please, and less entertainment? I want to know what the Scriptures are saying. I want to know God from beginning to end. 
I can't tell you how many people who are participating in Tina's Women of the Word uh, readings where they read the scriptures chronologically from beginning to end, but chronologically within time. Like, for instance, Job is one of the oldest books, right? And the amount of, the amount of testimonies that I have heard from people who have been reading, it's just amazing. One even said, like, I'm being introduced to God that I, sides of God I have never seen. <laughs> Isn't that true? How many of you have, are reading that right now or following the program and have seen sides of God that you're pretty shocked at? That's what these people were saying. Tell us. Tell us who God is. Tell us what God is saying. And I'm waiting for the day when people are desperate to know the same. Less entertainment, less psychology, less stories. Just tell us what God is saying. You see, the truth is that people absolutely love God. Well, let me say it this way. Those who totally love God absolutely love doctrine. People who love God love the Word. If, we are, if, if we're going to have a revival like we see happening right here in Nehemiah chapter 8, it is going to be because people are sitting in these seats crying out, share with us God's book. We want to hear God speak. We are desperate to know what God wants, what God desires, what God requires. Tell all about it. So the first element of a spiritual awakening is a spiritual hunger among the people. Because how many prophets have gone to nations and the nations ignored them? But this man, Ezra, was able to speak to a hungry people. The second thing is the confrontation of the word. That's the second element. The first element was spiritual hunger among the people. The second element was the confrontation of the word. Nehemiah 8 verse 2 says, Then Ezra the priest brought the law. Then Ezra the priest brought the law. Ezra prepared his entire life for this one moment. We found elsewhere in scriptures for 14 years, Ezra was studying scriptures, drawing from it and understanding God's intention, applying it to his own life, practicing it his own daily walk, teaching it faithfully to those throughout all the years. And now is the time as he steps out in front of this entire nation, while they are begging him to read the word of God, he's ready to do so. He's prepared to do so. In verse 3, Ezra reads to them the word. It says, he read from it from early morning until midday. How would you like a service that long? And it wasn't, there was no band or anything. It was him standing on a wooden platform reading the law <laughs> that God gave Moses. He read from it early in the morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were attentive from early in the morning until noon. But please don't imagine Ezra reading the Bible in public like we do these days. I love how Stephen Lawson says, when he refers to how people read the Scriptures these days, he says, quote, Today, when people read the Word in public, it's like the bland leading the bland. No, in Hebrew, the word read that is used here is the word korah, which means to cry out. It means to roar as in a lion. It means to proclaim. 
It is the same word that was used in Jonah, in Jonah 3 verse 2 when Jonah cried out, quote, In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And so he walked up and down the streets. And in the same way, Ezra was standing up there reading the Word of God, proclaiming it, roaring it to the people. He was very impassioned. Nehemiah 8 verse 3b says, And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. That struck me. <laughs> you see, the word attentive used here in Hebrew means the turning of the ear. You know when you have a conversation with somebody and you can see them going like, what was that? You know, they immediately lean in and they turn the ear. That's the word attention or attentive. The turning of a person's complete focus. Like I was listening to you, but I was thinking about three other things at the same time, looking behind you to see who else is coming through the door or something. And then suddenly you say something and I go, wait, what was that? And suddenly what I did was I tuned out everything else. And I'm like, wait, tell me again, what was that? <laughs> this, is, this is how the people were positioned. What was that? Tell me again, because every single word that I hear from the law, I know is actually God saying this to me. It's not for my neighbor, it's for me. It's not for the nation, it's for me. Pastors today, uh, we are always tempted to use entertainment, but there was no entertainment there to hold the people's attention. Today we are told that sermons need to be short because people have a problem with their attention span. I mean, they used to write books, letters, then it went to emails, and then emails went to texts, and then now a text went to a tweet, and a tweet went to an emoji. <laughs> we used to write books, now we send emojis. And we are told the sermons need to be short because people have problem with their attention span. And I'm just wondering why a person can sit in front of a two-hour movie glued to the screen and have no problem. You know why? Because it's, attention span is not the problem. It's the heart that's the problem. Zero interest, much interest. Right? A lot of interest. Four hours later, still playing that game. <laughs> trying to read a verse and the guy falls asleep halfway through. <laughs> and that's not a problem with not having the ability to pay attention. That's just not having any interest in my heart for what you are giving me, right? So when we raise our kids, we have to make sure we understand this truth. They can pay attention. The very same sun that hardens clay is the very same sun that melts wax. It's the heart. It's the response to what's coming at it. The very sun that hardens clay, that same sun also melts wax. It's our response to what we hear. It is our hearts that determine that. Nehemiah 8 verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. All the people instinctively rose to their feet, in order to show reverence, in order to show awe to the Word of God, because they realize that when the Bible speaks, God's speaking. They realize that when Scripture commands, God is commanding. 
When Scripture, when the Word of God leads, it's God leading. And the Word of God is not just inerrant, but infallible, meaning it can never fail you. It's not that it never fails, it never fails you when you submit yourself to it. For me to submit myself to God means I would have to submit myself to Scriptures because it is the Word of God. The way I exercise my authority in my house is I say, Kids, be quiet. That's how I exercise my authority. I use my words. And they can submit themselves to me by obeying what I said, right? Or they can rebel against me by not obeying what I said. In the same way God exercises His authority, gives us His Word. And for me to submit myself to God's authority is to submit myself to His Word. To be led by God is to obey His Word. To ignore or to rebel against God is to say, well, yeah, that's nice, but I'm not going to necessarily give myself to it. That is, rebelling against God is by ignoring His Word. So all the people instinctively rose to their feet in order to show reverence and awe for the Word of God because they realized that when God... When the Bible speaks, it is God speaking. Nehemiah 8 verse 6, and that's why I just want to mention, that's why I like it when we stand in the beginning of service to read the Word. It's not that I'm trying to be like anybody else. Um, it's just that I see it in Scriptures. And people who criticize that kind of thing is just because they don't, or they don't have not seen it in Scriptures. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8 verse 6 says, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. This is important. You see, Ezra's reading of the Word of God was a coronation service. A coronation service. Where God is crowned once again. Where God was being exalted. Where God was being magnified where He was being honored, like at a coronation, crowning Him, where God was made great in our midst. Ezra was blessing God. He was magnifying the name of God, and he was reading and explaining the Word of God. You see, there will never be a true awakening in your life individually, or in us corporately, or in this nation. There will never be a true awakening from God when man is exalted and lifted up, instead of God exalted and lifted up. you see that? And there is never a true move of God of any kind unless God is the one being magnified and God is the one being crowned. When God is the one being valued. When God is the one being honored. When He is the subject of the meeting. Where He is glorified in our midst. I have showed you this video before, but it does very clearly outline what I'm attempting to communicate to you right now. Let's just quickly watch this one minute video. Turn it up. Could you start that again, please? Thank you. realizing that that's what Satan is. Satan's a worm in the dirt and he's worthless. 
and he's trying to recreate himself in the soul of Christians. Now this is very, very important. God's motive for saving people is not found in that people. Something underneath of that sin must have been a great value for heaven to go bankrupt to get me back. Mm. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When the holy God looks at sinful men, the only thing their sin motivates God to do is judge them. God does not save us because we deserve to be saved. God saves us because he is a savior. God does not love us because we deserve to be loved. We do not deserve the love of God. We deserve his wrath. God saves us because he himself is love. You see, that is a uh, very good example of an upside-down gospel where there is emotional revival because of the focus of, yeah, I am great. Man, I'm so valuable. Look at that. He spent everything he had just to get me. You know, that's an upside-down gospel. That actually does not filter throughout scriptures at all. What does filter throughout scriptures is that all I deserved was judgment. And even though I was his enemy, the Bible says and they, they became altogether worthless in their sin, fallen and dead and spiritually dead. Yet God, in his love and mercy, he came and said, now that's good. To say that God came to purchase me, that's not necessarily good. That's just a wise decision on his part. If I was that valuable and he came and bought me because that was going to mean something to him, it's an upside down God. This is strange. It doesn't actually filter through scripture at all. But the point I'm trying to drive home is can you see how easy it is to make humans the subject of conversations, conversation, or the title of your sermon, or the content of what you're attempting to teach. It's her, their value, their potential, how wonderful they are. Instead, an awakening, how good is God really when He gave me all of that When he gave me all he had, not because I deserved it, but because he loves. Not because I'm valuable, because he's merciful. If you look at the upside down gospel, you have to show up in heaven thanking Jesus and congratulating yourself. You just have to. There's no other possible way of, of, of filtering that through. You have to say, Jesus, thank you for saving me and um, good job choosing me because good choice, by the way, good choice. You won't regret this, Jesus. So the conclusive point is that we see Ezra use the law of God to bless God and to magnify God for who he is. Nehemiah 8 verse 6 says, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, 
And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It was their high theology of God. It was their high view of God that drove them to high praises. Instead, what's happening in the world is people are seeing their their own value. They're lifting up their own value. And it's diminishing the actual praises to God because they are, in fact, sharing God's glory by elevating self. But here, in front of Ezra, it was the people's high theology and their high view of God caused them to fall to their faces and have high praises of God. You see, the deeper people go down into, the, into true doctrine of, of Scripture, the higher they will find their praises become. When you start seeing who God really is, you can't help but praise Him in a greater way than you praised Him prior to knowing who He really was. Their hearts were cut, their faces were to the ground before God. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 7, the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. You see, along with the reading of the Word came the explanation and the interpretation of the Word of God. Nehemiah 8 verse 8 says, They read from the book, from the law of God, translating, in other words, to make it clear, to make it plain, to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So there was the proclaiming of the Word of God, roaring like a lion, and then the Levites got gathered with the people. Now what are you saying is this, that, and the other? Do you have any questions? Those two were very evident right here in this awakening. Every spiritual awakening has always been ushered in by this kind of bold, biblical preaching, declaration, and teaching with great clarity. You see, this is what took place with Luther, with Huss, with Calvin, with Tyndale, and the rest of them during the Reformation. They were bold, but they were articulate teachers of the Word. This is what happened during the Golden, the golden Puritan Age. They were simple, articulate preachers of the Word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. That's what happened during the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards and, and George Whitfield. In the 1730s and 1740s, they were bold preachers of the Word of God, articulate. That is what happened during the Victorian age with Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle. These men were heart-penetrating preachers, articulating the very glory of God to our human understanding. This is the awakening. That's how this takes place. God gave us a book to read and to understand, and He is revealed this way. Every spiritual awakening is ushered in by a new generation of preachers who must proclaim scriptures boldly and teach it with great articulation. So we see people were hungry, number one. We see, number two, the confrontation of the Word of God. People were confronted with the truth of God. And Jesus said, blessed are you if you're not offended in me. Because most of the world today, when the Word comes to them, there's an offense. Why? Because they're the ones judging God. They see themselves as God's judge. They decide if God is merciful or not. When it comes to same-sex marriage, or whatever the case may be, 
They're the ones that said, well, God's wrong because they see themselves as judge, judging God. So number three, we see the conviction from God's word. The conviction from God's word. Nehemiah 8 verse 9 says, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the Lord. All the people were weeping when they heard the words of God. You're going to do one or two things, folks. When you, when you get a revelation of who God is, you're going to either gnash your teeth or you're going to weep. You're either going to be angry, offended at Christ, or you're going to weep for self. Blessed are the brokenhearted. Not brokenhearted because your girlfriend left you. Brokenhearted because you lost your innocence and you realized you have sinned. Blessed are the mourn, those who mourn. Romans 3 verse 20 says, For, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And if, if you have ever had a broken ankle, then you actually need that to hurt, right? The worst thing is to not feel your broken ankle. In this sense, the lack of pain is really, really the lack of mercy. And that's it. the lack of pain would be lack of mercy because you would be running around with a broken ankle. But to have pain is to have mercy because it shows you what not to do. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7b, it says, I would not have known, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, nobody skips and giggles through the narrow gate and skips and giggles down the narrow road. Nobody actually does that. Jesus said, the gate's narrow, the road is narrow, that leads to life. Nobody skips down there. You see, if God is to send us a great awakening, it is because we have realized that God is holy, that God is just, that God is altogether righteous. And because of it, we are in a desperate need of being saved from God. Who does Jesus save us from? The wrath of God. Jesus came to deal with our sin. How did He deal with our sin? He interceded. He interjected Himself between you and God's wrath against your sin. So if God is to send us a great awakening, it is because we have realized that God is holy, God is just, God is altogether righteous, and because of it we are in desperate need of being saved from Him, from His wrath against our sin. So I want to close by saying, may God help us, teach us how to guard our hearts from the hardening of sin. And may we once again be cut to the heart as we hear His Word in Scriptures. And as we go to the scriptures, that it will become alive to us and that we will see God 
We see who He is. We get to know Him more every day. As we open the Word, you see it is my prayer that we at Christ Nation will always cry out, bring the book. Just bring, give me the Word. Just give me the Word. That's what I so love about Sid Shaw. Uh, you know, we, we have breakfast very often, and, and I can't tell you if there's ever been a breakfast where he hasn't said, you know, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to explain that. Just tell me what the Word says. I just want to know what the right thing is to do. And then, of course, there's a lot of repenting always uh, with a humble person. But I'm, I'm saying that it's so important for us to always say, just give me the truth. Okay, what is the truth? I need to know it. Because um, I'm not going to set myself up as judge over it. I just want to know what God is saying. Bring me the book. Above all else, give us God's word. It is my prayer that we at Christ Nation will always be cut to the heart when we see God's holiness and when we see God's justice. It is my prayer that we, that we here will always magnify God and not emphasize man. That is, that is such a deception uh, that it's, it's hard to see the wrong in it. <laughs> you know, you have to think through it very clearly. And, and, and know what to look for when you listen to a sermon because we have to make sure that God is glorified and every man is brought low. It is my prayer finally that we here will always in every way exalt the Lord and not lift up ourselves in any way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Father God, that you... Show mercy. Show mercy to us, Lord. Thank you for your kindness to us, God. We deserve judgment. We deserve justice. We received mercy instead. We deserved justice, but we got mercy. And I thank you, Father God, that as we hear your word and as we learn about who you are, that we will be humbled and not angered, that we will weep, and not grind our teeth. That we will give ourselves with gratitude and not be offended. Thank you, God, for showing yourself to us in all your glory, all your splendor, your majesty and your justice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.